Hello and welcome to the September 12th edition of Ukraine Without Hype. I'm Anthony Bardaway and I'm here with my colleague Romeo Kokratsky. This week, unlike many weeks in the past, we actually have a lot of good news. We'll be focusing on the Ukrainian counteroffensive in the Kharkiv region, which has almost entirely liberated the oblast. This retreat represents a historic military loss for Russia and may represent a turning point in the ongoing full-scale invasion. It is hard to overstate the losses that Russia has taken uh, in this route from Kharkiv Oblast. The amount of men and material that they have lost is still being calculated. Yeah, this was not a simple retreat. It was an utter rout. They were, their lines were broken. They ran away. But before we get into that, we'll explain what led to this victory for the Ukrainian army, uh, then go into some of the details of what happened, then have a discussion on what this means for the war more broadly. So for weeks on end, Ukraine was very loudly announcing its plans to attack the Russians in the Kherson region, uh, especially on the western side of the Dnipro River. Now, they were, like I said, very loud about this, and Russia heard them. So in order to anticipate this attack, Russia relocated most of its high-end units in order to defend Kherson. This was most of their VDV, it seems like, the, the airborne assault units. And generally, they put everything they had into defending Kherson. Leading up to the attack on Kherson, as we've discussed in past episodes, there was a significant shaping operation in the region by Ukraine. This included destroying bridges, wearing down various um, uh, warehouses and logistic points in order to attrit the enemy as much as possible. Then began the attack. Ukraine attacked the front lines in Kherson in every single direction, but made especially good progress on the northernmost part of this region, uh, just south of uh, Kriviri, along the road from Mikolaev straight towards Kherson city, and a salient in the middle that had already been made into a bridgehead against the uh, Inhalets River. So these were the three main directions that Ukraine was making progress from. But it was still somewhat slow, and it seemed largely there in order to uh, wear down Russia's warfighting capabilities more so than a mad dash for the city itself. Meanwhile, however, Ukraine was building up another attack force in the Kharkiv region. Now Russia actually noticed this happening. On Russian Telegram and throughout the various um, open source intelligence guys that they have, they were all pointing out that this force existed and were sounding the alarm that something had to happen. However, Russia did not respond. With all their best units in Kherson, the only things protecting a Kharkiv region were a bunch of conscripts, slave soldiers drawn up from the occupied Donbass along with, well, riot cops, um, people who were not soldiers themselves, but were just spent most of their time and careers beating up protesters, along with some higher-end units. Apparently, the 1st Tank Guards Army was still 
uh, in this region. And then it happened. On September 6th, the assault began in the direction of the city of Balaklia. When Ukrainian units met the Russian defense lines in occupied Kharkiv Oblast, uh, they expected a fight. Ukraine was using highly mobile uh, motorized infantry forces backed up by armor and artillery to quickly uh, head into the region, scout out and begin what it had assumed was going to be a series of pitched battle uh, with every meter one in blood. Instead, what it found was a Russian defense that literally turned tail and ran the second a Ukrainian presence was noted. Dissolved on impact, a lot of them. It was uh, stunning. Yeah, and watching it in real time uh, was something to behold. Uh, over the course of the first eight days, something like 1,500 square kilometers of territory was liberated in uh, what some people on Twitter have uh, taken to referring to as a Blitzkrieg. <laughs> um, in other words, there was basically no resistance from the Russians wherever Ukraine engaged. And that includes up to major logistical hubs like Kupiansk. Yeah, it's hard to explain this without directly looking at a map, but from Balaklia, the Ukrainian spearhead over the course of just a couple of days was able to make its way all the way to Kupiansk, which is on the crossing of the Oskil River, which is, we've had a lot of episodes talking about the importance of river, rivers. The Oskil is another tributary of the Donets that is quite large, and Kupiansk was the crossing for a large part of it. So in, so they had already reached Kupiansk by September 9th. This was, like we said, amazingly quick. And then they captured it the next day on the 10th. Then after reaching Kupiansk, they're able to follow the river south, slowly cutting off any other route of access to Izum. Now, if you're listening to all of our um, talk about the battle for Donbass, Izum has been the central hub that Russia has organized its units around. It is where it has put its command and control. It is where they put all their material. It is where they were organizing the attack on Slovyansk. And Izum, like everywhere else, crumbled within a few days. Just, <laughs> it's, hard to, uh, it's hard to overstate just how incredible and swift this offensive was. And understand that there was no appreciable Russian resistance um, along most of, of this advance. The Kharkiv uh, front and the Russian defenses suffered what uh, a colleague of mine referred to as a collapstrophy. They left armies worth, really, of heavy armor behind, uh, especially around Izum, um, which, Anthony, as you mentioned, was a one of Russia's central logistical hubs for um, both the northern and the eastern fronts. So they, they literally took whatever was on their back and booked it for the Russian border. And this just continued to happen. At no point um, did the Russians manage to cobble together a heroic last stand or a significant defense anywhere uh, in the entire oblast. Yes, then after Hizum fell, and this whole 
um, organizing structure fell apart, Ukraine then turned northward, pushing further into Kharkiv Oblast until the Russians essentially called for a complete withdrawal from the region, or at least the region on the western side of the Oskil River. They are still holding on to the east. This has included all of the villages to the north of Kharkiv City that they have been, that Russians have been shelling Kharkiv from. Ukraine has secured all border crossings north of Kharkiv. They, the Russians have relocated their occupation authority all the way to Belgorod region into Russia itself to maintain some kind of phantom occupation government over what still remains in the Kharkiv region, which again is not very much, only what's on the eastern side of the Oskil. Um, and now Ukraine has not secured all of this territory yet. The Russians are trying to have some kind of ordered retreat from this area. But it seems as though whatever's left, it's a matter of honestly, probably by the end of today, it will be all secured and taken care of. So that completes the battle for Kharkiv. <laughs> uh, we kind of celebrated when the Russians were pushed just far enough away to render a lot of their artillery unable to reach the city center. But now the battle for Kharkiv is won in its entirety. Though I do want to note that Russia can and still is launching missiles from Belgorod itself uh, into Kharkiv. Belgorod is only 40 kilometers away. So uh, Russian cruise missile launches still happening. However, According to maps published by the Russian Ministry of Defense itself, they have uh, conducted a complete and utter withdrawal of the entirety of Kharkiv Oblast, save for a small part um, that, as you mentioned, Anthony, um, is east of the Oskil River. Yeah, so as this offensive rolled on, the question became, what's next? Uh, there was seemingly no way that the Russians were able to stop this rolling offensive. Even Ukrainians were stunned, but it wasn't expected. Uh, I don't think any of the planners for this offensive expected it to go this well, this quickly. Again, there was an assumption that there would be some sort of Russian defense, that there would be, at least in, in some strategic areas, pitched set-piece battles um, that would have to be won with blood and treasure. And that just didn't happen. Um, in one part of the advance, uh, Ukraine lost two armored personnel carriers compared to something like 30 for Russia. Um, that is a very good <laughs> win-loss ratio, let me tell you guys. Uh, it's... Eh, it's it was surprising, I think, not only to the rest of the world, um, but likely to the soldiers and commanders themselves conducting this operation. Yeah, not to um, underplay some of the losses we heard, for, for example, the commander of the um, anti-fascist uh, formation built around the Arsenal Ultras, the football club Ultras. Their commander was killed in this offensive, 
and I did see several other high-profile casualties. But overall, in the general rule of warfare, when the enemy is routed and running, they're the ones taking the casualties, not so much you. Although, they still also happen to you. It's a very disproportionate math, and has been throughout the entire history of warfare. If you look at any battle, any war in history, that's when uh, casualties are inflicted on the enemy. But as this route was underway, there were many other directions that Ukraine was probing in, some of them more successful than others. For example, in the northern Donetsk Oblast uh, region, uh, they were able to retake Lyman, apparently. The city that we were talking about on the other side of the uh, Donetsk River, where we described many weeks ago about how it was trapped by the Russians on the other side of this river and was in a difficult position until being overrun. It was taken back in about a day, it seemed. Uh, Sviatohorsk, same story. We were talking about how it was this incredibly vulnerable defensive strong point that fell in the Russian advances. Again, about a day it was taken back. Um, in other directions, other parts of the uh, this northern area of the Donets River facing Izium were taken back, including one town, the name's escaping me at the moment, that was actually taken back by Ukrainian partisans. There was a, like a local uprising, apparently. In other directions, there was less luck. Um, apparently, there was an assault on the Donetsk airport. Some Ukrainian news was saying that the Donetsk airport was taken, but that was, I, that was clearly overenthusiastic. But apparently there was a push on the area with some gains, perhaps. I do want to warn uh, listeners that um, any alleged reports from the Donetsk airport are purely uh, down to hearsay and rumor. And obviously there's not been any official confirmation of pushing that far. There was also an assault on Lysychansk. And while there were some reports that the city was taken, again, that was over-enthusiastic speculation, we do know that it is currently in the process of being contested. There is a concerted Ukrainian assault on the city that has not been pushed back. According to the regional governor of the area, Sergei Haidai, um, he kind of hinted that Lysychansk is expected to be liberated uh, in the very near future. So it might even be today, it might be tomorrow, but it will be very soon. Um, and of course, what all of these pushes um, on the Donbass mean is that the rats are leaving the ship. Um, one notable kind of uh, withdrawal, Russian withdrawal, is the disappearance of uh, the Donetsk puppet authority head, uh, Denis Pushilin. He last posted a message from a car saying that he is leaving the city of Donetsk itself, but is staying in touch with the occupation authorities. Uh, after that, no one's heard from him. Um, it is assumed by many that he has fled to Russia. Uh, and Pushilin has been um, Russia's point man in uh, occupied Donetsk for quite a while. Uh, so his flight to wherever it is, whether it's into other occupied territories of Ukraine or back to Russia itself, um, definitely represents a signal. Uh, the Russians and their collaborators are, are uh, noticing the, the shift in mood uh, in their area and are likely trying to um, get ahead of any possible guerrilla or partisan reprisals. 
And speaking of these collaborators, it seems as though the Russian retreat was so fast and disorganized that many of them, many of these collaborators rather, were left behind. Uh, various police chiefs of towns were have already been arrested for their um, collaboration with the Russian forces. And even some of these Russian teachers were brought in to occupied te- uh, territory in order to convert the locals into being Russian were abandoned entirely. So are now under uh, Ukrainian um, arrest of some kind. I don't know what they intend to do with these people. I'm sure the Ukrainian authorities will figure it out, but all of this comes paired with reports of dozens of kilometer long lines um, at the Russian border. And surprise, surprise, while well, surprising no one really, uh, the Russians have actually closed their borders uh, to these collaborators. That is, uh, these people who almost always hold Russian passports meaning they are technically Russian citizens, are not currently being allowed into the country. They are being forced to stay in occupied Ukraine, which is pretty ironic considering the Russian military motto of Svayich Nebrasayim, or we don't leave ours behind. And this will be a major factor throughout the rest of occupied territory. Many of these people who took Russian passports were not, you know, enthusiastic uh, partisans of the Russian world, they were just kind of accepting the awful circumstances that they were in, which is the standard mode that most people take under any occupation. That is usually um, uh, reliant upon them thinking that the current status quo will stick around for a while. These are not necessarily committed partisans of the Russian world. There are people accepting their fate as being under occupation and doing what they can in order to deal with those circumstances. But in all cases like that, that's very contingent upon them assuming that that is in fact the status quo that will stick around. So now when you look at Zaporizhia Oblast, at Kherson Oblast, at the rest of Donbass, the people living there now know that they will be abandoned. Russia is not there to uh, protect them is not there to even evacuate them. And most importantly of all, Russia can be broken. They can go away. If you're just trying to eke out your normal life, you can now have that hope that Ukraine will be back and you don't have to put up with the Russians as much as you used to, which could mean more support for partisans, even more people joining the partisans, because they know that in the future, they could be on the winning side and be safe on the winning side. And one thing I want to note psychologically is it's one thing to start realizing all of this as um, a resident of an occupied Ukrainian territory like Zaporizhia, but it's got to be another thing entirely for Crimean residents, um, many of whom were in favor of Russian dominion over the peninsula. Uh, Now, even they will have questions of whether or not they are considered to be real or true Russian citizens to be let into the country um, when the inevitable liberation operation there begins. Yeah, so both on the civilian and the military side, the psychological impact of this is might be even more important than the actual territorial gains. If you look at the Russian retreat from Kiev, 
you, they could still spin that. It was they were not driven out of Kiev by a concerted uh, Ukrainian offensive. They were they just kind of were stuck and didn't know what to do and had to um, kind of pull up shop and go elsewhere. Yeah. So they could spin that around. They could say that, oh, we were just refocusing our efforts. We were not kicked out. We just chose to do this. I believe the term they used was a goodwill gesture. Yes, as these goodwill gestures to leave Kiev, to leave Snake Island, they cannot spin that with Kharkiv. They were broken entirely. So this idea of the invulnerable, unbeatable Russian army, I, if you're a Russian soldier right now, I don't see how you can still believe that. It's worth also pointing out, um, beyond the morale effects, or rather, keeping in mind the morale effects that the units that had been routed that had that simply abandoned all of their equipment turned tail and ran straight back to Russia um these guys will likely be redeployed to shore up Donbass or even Kherson and they will take these um infectious little germs of doubt and panic with them wherever they go yeah, put one of these guys in a unit, and as soon as things look bad for that unit, that guy will be saying, oh shit, this is what happened in Kharkiv. And people will be asking him questions about how the Russian army treated them after they broke in Kharkiv. Ideas have a virality to them, and now the entire Russian army will be infected. It couldn't have happened to better people, let me tell you. Um, but I did want to uh, talk about the geostrategical effects of um, all of this captured or liberated territory, I should say, as well, um, particularly Izum. Um, as I mentioned before, Izum wasn't just a uh, logistical hub for the Kharkiv front. It was also the main um, logistical hub for the Donbass front. Um, to be frank, and again, neither myself nor Anthony are military experts. Uh, we are, in a word, armchair generals. So take anything we say about this with a grain of salt. Um, however, it doesn't seem to me that Russia can now even hold the Donbass long term in the face of another concerted Ukrainian push. As we just mentioned, sending the units that routed at Kharkiv to shore up the defenses in Donbass will likely be anti-effective. It will likely uh, worsen the existing quality of defenses there. Meanwhile, Kupiansk was a rail hub for that part of the country. Um, Russian logistics primarily uh, relies on rail to get things from Russia to literally anywhere else. Um, whenever they form columns of uh, supply trucks and so on, as we saw with the um, battle for Kiev, these columns become incredibly, incredibly inviting targets uh, for Ukrainian sabotage and ambush groups to dismantle at basically their leisure. Uh, and on top of that, um, the Russians now cannot really attack any of the targets um, that they need to, such as Slavyansk, in order to take Donbass and achieve they're already scaled down war aims. Um, of course, Donetsk and Luhansk remain major urban centers. And typically speaking, um, major urban centers are retaken only after months of uh, fighting, blood, and sacrifice. However, 
with the flight of many of the occupation authorities and the absolutely shaken state of the defenses left there, um, on top of the fact that they, they have mostly slave soldiers in those areas. Um, and by slave soldiers, what I mean is literally people taken from the street, given no training, no equipment, and told to go run towards the enemy until they die um, with zero choice or agency in the matter. Literally forcibly conscripted slaves. So this really tells me, at least, that the Donbass um, is, for all intents and purposes, for Russia, a foregone conclusion. They will not be able to... Uh, as the Russians lie about it, maintain the sovereignty of the Donetsk and Luhansk People's Republics, or in other words, uh, maintain their occupation over the parts of Ukraine they invaded back in 2014. And their minimal war, game, war claims were to secure the independence or annexation of these areas. So as you've been talking about much of this time, Russia at any point could have called an end to the war and said, we, we uh, succeeded in accomplishing these goals without really explaining what those goals were. They left it enough on the table to explain away anything as a win. But with the abandonment of the DNR by its, its head, that really, again, like you said, tells you that or retaking these areas are very much on the table for Ukraine. And soon, too. Um, we're not talking about something that's going to happen another six months down the line. We're talking about events that are likely going to evolve over the next uh, two weeks to a month. Well, I still think that they are dug in enough on the traditional front line that an assault in this area will be very hard fought. But the key question here is where Russia will place its soldiers. Now, right now, they are trying to reconstitute a defensive line on the eastern side of the Oskil River. Now, Ukraine has been able to probe into this area as well, so we can't say that this is where their defensive line will become. Ukraine will keep going forward until they can't go forward anymore, is what it seems like. But in order to have this effective defensive line on the east side of the Oskil River to protect the Luhansk oblast and their holdings there they then have to answer they then have to figure out where are we pulling soldiers from the russians are running very low on reinforcements their reserves are quite dwindled so they have to say do we want to prioritize in luhansk region do we want to prioritize in donetsk do we want to prioritize in Kherson? Do you want to prioritize in Zaporizhia? Because there are rumors of a possible Ukrainian offensive in Zaporizhia as well, and in order to push down to um, Melitopol or Mariupol. These are possibilities. And Russia has to decide which ones they want to put the most effort into stopping. And whichever choice they make will depreciate their ability to defend other areas. And luckily, if this war has shown us anything so far, is that when uh, Russian military commanders are presented with a choice, they will invariably find a new one that combines the worst aspects of all of them. Yeah, so whatever local commander will demand that their region is most important, which results in weakening everywhere. Um, right now, uh, Herson Oblast has the bulk of their best soldiers. 
And they could try to withdraw those in order to put them elsewhere. But one, as you've explained with the situation with the destroyed bridges, it's hard to move things in and out of Herson. So any withdrawal from that area will take time, especially if it involves tanks and APCs and other heavy equipment. They could draw in this third army that we've been wondering about. Uh, We don't quite know what they're doing. They are currently in most of them anyway, are currently still in Belgorod region. They're probably going to be used to defend Luhansk Oblast, it looks like. But that means that third army can't be used elsewhere. If they make the choice to defend both Herson and Luhansk, that means they don't have the men and manpower to protect Zaporizhia region and especially the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. So what will happen in the future? We don't really know, um, but it will all depend on what Russia chooses to prioritize defending and what it doesn't. Uh, What it doesn't choose to prioritize, we are likely to see uh, future Ukrainian advances, as we've seen some further advances in Kherson region already, as they're trying to figure out what to do. And there may be, again, Ukrainian setbacks where Russia chooses to reinforce. So there's lots of questions in the air right now. Um, It seemed as though up until now that the course of the war was pretty uh, predictable. Russia was making slow grinding process, the waves of the Russian offensive breaking themselves on the rocks of Bakhmut and other frontline towns. Um, But slow progress that resulted in heavy attrition until they would eventually stop. But now, with Ukraine taking the initiative, who knows what the future will be in the short term or the long. So for for most of this uh, discussion so far, we've been talking about how things look from the Russian perspective. Um, But dear listeners, I wanted to give you a little taste of what it's like to be Ukrainian right now. Let me tell you, Life is pretty great. Ukrainians have been waiting, needing even, a success like this for months. The grinding nature of the war um, over the past few months lent itself not to defeatism, but to a resignation that the war will neither be swift nor painless. Um, And while everyone is resolved to fight and everyone believes in victory, everyone was also ready to hold it out for the long haul. Now that this complete liberation of Kharkiv Oblast um, is basically wrapped up, the mood is is basically exultory. Uh, Everyone is happier, (laughs) smiling and joking. On Friday, when uh, we first received news of the liberation of Kupyansk, the security guard in my office went around and handed everyone a beat uh, in kind of celebration of our advances uh, at that time. You know, like yesterday, I went to a cafe for lunch. I was sitting there with my, my cheesy toast, and everyone around me was watching videos of the liberation. You could like, like I, the sound coming from every phone was, you know, these uh, babushki saying like, "Daku, daku," and like handing the soldiers flowers. Like I knew what videos they were watching because I watched all of them myself. And this is such an incredible morale boost to see 
these people, after six months of occupation, finally being free and just having an explosion of emotion over it. It got a little dusty. I mean, I've cried uh, a number of times watching this, uh, these videos um, because these people are like, they're not strangers. These are all people that you can easily imagine being um, people you know, your neighbors or your family, and just watching them, knowing that they will no longer have to suffer uh, the fate of Bucha or Mariupol, that they are now safe. Um, it's, it's impossible to overstate how um, proud and pleased and relieved that makes, uh, that makes us feel. So that was, I, I've, <laughs> the mood has been higher now than any time since the immediate liberation of the Kiev region. But what do you think is going to be happening going forward? Time to do some, some wild speculate speculations. Again, with all the caveats that uh, neither host of this podcast are in any way military experts, um, though we do know a few that we've asked for advice. So hopefully that informs our um, wildly inaccurate predictions. Here. Um, but I wanted to kind of like address a couple of the questions that you'd raised earlier, Anthony. So things like where is the Third Army? Um, well, there have been a couple of OSINT reports that elements of the third army, at least um, elements of their armor divisions uh, were spotted as part of the uh, left behind material in Kharkiv. So at least parts of the third army corps and the third army corps um, for listeners who may not remember when we spoke about this before is a supposedly a new uh, fresh new army that the Russians have raised. Um, though, of course, there are pretty big questions regarding the um, true material composition of that army, um, the state and training status of the soldiers making it up, um, the experience of their commanders. There's a lot of questions for everything involving Russia, basically. Um, but it supposedly is equipped with the most modern of Russian technology and uh, is fresh-faced and uh, has a completely green morale bar those of you that play video games um so on paper this is uh a a perfect kind of uh addition to the um rapidly depleting russian forces um though in practice as i said uh elements have been identified in kharkiv um the uh, assumption of some military experts is that most of the third army corps uh is currently bunkered down in belgorod uh itself that is it's still in Russia. They haven't uh, quite sent it. Um, they haven't quite committed uh, the entire army's strength to any particular front. Um, likely, because as uh, Anthony brought up before, uh, they have a lot of places that they really need more men at. And they really don't have the men to do it. Um, again, I really think that we will be um, seeing the liberation of Donetsk and Luhansk within the month um, and possibly sooner, uh, depending on what those garrisons and defenses are um, really uh, are really staffed with. If it is the same quality of conscripts and slaves that Kharkiv was, which 
seems incredibly even more likely, um, considering that the the puppet authorities are usually left to manage their own security status um, since the full-scale invasion, then uh, we may just see a repeat of the route that we've seen in Hark. So the Donbass, in my estimation, is uh, well on track to be liberated. Uh, and as for the South, um, I believe that Kherson, the operation there, while the Ukrainian military has had a media blackout and has ha- has been very incredibly quiet on the progress of the Southern Front, um, they have simply named a, a couple of villages near Ukrainian-held territory that have been liberated, um, but nothing concrete, nothing on the way um, the battles near Kherson city itself are going, um, despite reports a few weeks back uh, that Ukrainian troops had reached the city outskirts. Um, there have been no updates like that. Um, but at the same time, my belief is that Ukraine doesn't actually need to uh, conduct any pitched battles in Kherson. Um, the only thing the Ukrainian military needs to do there is time, um, is wait, rather. Because again, uh, the Ukrainian military has fire control over every single supply route uh, into Kherson. Um, there is an estimated 15 to 20,000 Russian soldiers garrisoned um, in the oblast. They cannot be reinforced practically. They cannot be resupplied practically. They will start to starve. Um, their guns will run out of ammo and they have no way of getting more. Uh, that is, we're looking at a modern rendition, I think of a classic medieval siege. Um, The enemy is more or less surrounded. They have no way to go out and they have no way to get anything more to fight. Uh, That means that uh, they will in time break. They are humans there. Um, They need food and water and ammo. And if those things are not provided, then they will simply have nothing to do. Uh, On top of that, partisan activity has intensified on very drastically, uh, especially in Kherson Oblast, but also in occupied Zaporizhia Oblast. And that will add even more damage, uh, chaos, and confusion to the um, already corroded uh, Russian defenses in those areas. Yeah, I agree with um, essentially everything you said about the Kherson region. The soldiers there, we kind of want them there rather than anywhere else for the reasons we've gone over so many times before, just because they are stuck there and don't have easy resupply, which means they can run out of stuff. Um, But I think this kind of gets into the question of how long does the current offensive go um, and where? Uh, I'm more pessimistic on the taking of Donetsk and Luhansk themselves, just because that is probably the hardest defensive point that the Russians have right now. And there are paths of much less resistance than that. Uh, the, less, the rest of Luhansk Oblast does not look like it is particularly well dug in because this line of defense was on Izium. So an attack there may be more fruitful in the short term. Um, again, there's rumors of a possible offensive in the direction of Melitopol or even Mariupol. Again, the Russian defenses there are much lighter than they are in Donetsk. So I think that there are other options to wear down at Russia other than uh, Donetsk or Luhansk directly. And also, I want to, I am one thing, there's one thing I am kind of afraid of, which is if Ukraine is able to take back everything else besides the 
uh, the old occupied territory of the LNR DNR. At that point, I'm kind of afraid that the Europeans might say that now's the time to call for a peace treaty, that all the Russian gains post February 24th were reversed. So maybe it's the time for diplomacy instead. And that is a major danger that would result in the danger of um, a withdrawal of support and increased calls for diplomacy if everything else is taken before um, the traditional LNR DNR territories. If they say that, okay, you've pushed back this war, so it's time to relitigate the last one. And I am I am seriously concerned about um, if Ukraine is so successful that that happens quickly, if there could be uh, calls for peace that are premature. Honestly, I'm not too worried about that. Um, I think the Zelensky administration has made its point very clear um, to the global community that Ukraine will not categorically engage in negotiations uh, with Russia until all Russian presence, including from the uh, Donetsk and Luhansk puppet authorities um, and Crimea are cleared of Russian occupation. I, I, I don't believe that European states or any states really uh, can influence that decision in any way. Um, as Ukrainians keep reminding everyone, this is a democratic country. Zelensky, while a, uh, an effective wartime leader, is not king, nor God, nor Tsar. Um, and Ukrainians overwhelmingly and consistently have said that uh, we will not negotiate with Russia um, until Ukraine is free. Uh, so I'm not worried about any calls like that because I know ultimately um, they will go nowhere. Uh, on top of that, Lend-Lease is still in effect. Um, we are still receiving um, mass amounts of aid uh, pretty much constantly from the United States, um, as well, uh, of course, from the UK and other European countries. Uh, even Germany is pitching in. And as commentators on Twitter have noted, um, Russia itself has been one of the greatest contributors um, to the Ukrainian war effort since the beginning of their full-scale invasion, thanks to their habit of leaving all of their materiel when they lose. Uh, so they, 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 they've given us quite a lot. I believe there was a, uh, someone made notice of the fact that over the past 11 days of the um, Kharkiv liberation operation, uh, Russia contributed more militarily to Ukraine's defense um, through their abandoned uh, materiel than Germany has donated in military aid to Ukraine for the whole full scale. Entire warehouses, entire motor pools just left behind, not even booby trapped or anything, just full operating condition, just left behind. And this isn't complex, modern NATO standard tech that you're going to have to train anyone on. Um, this is the old Soviet stuff that everyone knows how to use um, and that require literally nothing but a fresh coat of paint and new markings to be rolled into Ukrainian service. Um, so I'm not worried about um, any calls for peace or international pressure at all. Um, nor am I worried about really difficulties with retaking LDNR territory. The biggest impediment um, to retaking that territory uh, prior to the full-scale invasion was, A, the fact that Ukraine was bound um, by the horribly, in my personal opinion, 
um, ineffectual and harmful Minsk Accords. Uh, they were, Ukraine did not and was not planning to engage in full-scale war with Russia over those territories. Um, and Ukraine was getting barely a trickle, a fraction of the support, um, military support that it was getting now, forcing us to stick to old, um, unreliable Soviet equipment. Those factors, all of those factors that had earlier contributed uh, to the defenses in the um, occupied territories in Donbass no longer apply. We are in a full-scale war, and we've kicked their ass. Um, their administration is running back to Russia or wherever the hell, who knows. Uh, and our military has um, both modern and Soviet weapons. And we've proven, especially with the Kharkiv Offensive, um, that Ukraine can conduct sweeping liberation operations. Uh, so I, I don't really have a lot of pessimism there. Um, though I do want to say what there are two areas that worry me um, where I cannot even venture to predict um, the Russian reaction. And that is uh, the liberation of Zaporizhia uh, Oblast, specifically of the liberation of the Zaporizhian nuclear power plant, which as of yesterday is completely disconnected uh, from the Ukrainian grid. Its last remaining operational reactor, reactor number six, has been put into cold shutdown. Um, and it is basically now out of uh, the question. The International Atomic Energy uh, Agency has um, recommended that it be put in a close to shutdown state as possible um, to prevent the risk of uh, radiation leaks. The Russians are still using the ZNPP to shell Ukrainian positions. Um, and to be quite honest, considering that I believe in the course of modern history, um, there has never been a battle to retake an occupied nuclear plant. I don't really know what, how or what. Um, that will take, especially if Russian threats of having uh, mined the reactors themselves uh, are true, then any possible liberation uh, or military assault on the facility uh, could end very, very poorly uh, for pretty much all of Europe. Um, aside from that, another worrying factor is Crimea. Unlike the uh, puppet authorities, Crimea is considered to be a fully-fledged Russian oblast, a fully-fledged part of Russia. Um, Russian national identity over the past eight years has cemented Crimea as fully Russian, um, even amongst the uh, so-called Russian opposition, the liberal or moderate Russian um, opposition politicians. Uh, they all seem to be pretty, pretty set on Crimea remaining Russian. And it's been a pretty big selling point of uh, Putin's sort of make Russia great again ideology um, that he's instilled over the past um, decade, decade and a half. On top of that, Crimea will be incredibly difficult to invade simply because it's geography. Um, the land bridge connecting Crimea to mainland Ukraine is pretty narrow and easily fortified. Uh, Russia has pretty much still complete control over the Azov and Black Seas and can um, resupply the peninsula um, over water as easily as they can over land. And uh, in case um, and of course, when Kherson Oblast finally does fall, uh, all of the reinforcements that Russia has been building up to send into Kherson will simply stay in Crimea and fortify um, the peninsula itself. 
those are the the two sort of problem spots that I'm anticipating uh, in the war going forward. And of course, um, that extends to the Azov Sea coastline, uh, Melitopol, Berdyansk, uh, Mariupol as well, since they all uh, kind of fall within um, that naval umbrella that Russia is still able to wield. And the unfortunate truth is also that in Crimea, there is more local support, um, partially genuine local support, partially colonists who are relocated there within the pre- previous few years will obviously be some measure of loyalist. And it's mountains. Crimea has mountains. It's hard to fight in mountains. So don't expect any battle of Crimea to go um, easily. But I would like to round off this conversation with how has the how have the Russians reacted to all of this? Uh, on one hand, the official channels, you know, the 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 buttoned up operations, as it were, have been very slow to respond to it in any way. They don't know what the story is supposed to be, and they're not exactly brave. Sliding along the Russian media um, sliding scale into the pundits, and there has been some level of panic. Um, some of these talk shows have been shouting matches between people's arguing over what Russia needs to do now because what's happening right now is a disaster. And finally, the ultranationalists who mostly live on the internet, uh, telegram channels and such, and they have been losing their goddamn minds. There has been a whole stabbed in the back mythology building up of we are purposely left behind to die. And something in the government is undermining this national project. We need to mobilize right now or we're all going to lose and we're going to abandon our uh, Ukrainian conquests. I actually believe one um, rather unhinged, even for Russian nationalist telegram uh, channel uh, accused Putin of being secretly Jewish and in cahoots with Zelensky. Yeah. Uh, if you would recall our old uh, episode explaining Russian anti-Semitism, I kind of gave the prediction that when Russia runs into serious challenges to its autocracy, the Jews become a major target, and we're starting to see that happen. So all in all, um, the, the Russian cope for this situation is, is not really working out as well as it did um, for earlier losses like Kiev. Uh, it is quite difficult to spin a, not a withdrawal, not a uh, hard-fought loss, but an utter and complete cowardly rout as anything but. And to kind of conclude our episode here, I would like to say what the actual Russian response to this was, which was to uh, launch missiles at an um, electricity plant in Kharkiv, which knocked out electricity for Kharkiv and a few other regions but was very quickly restored. And Zelensky, in his statement about this, I think gave a very, <clears throat> a very powerful summation of Ukrainian feelings about directly losing this electricity and Russia wielding energy as a weapon and all that. And here's how it concluded, and very powerful stuff. Read my lips. Without gas or without you? Without you. Without light or without you, without you, 
without water or without you, without you, without food or without you, without you. Cold, hunger, darkness, and thirst are not near as terrible and deadly for us as your friendship and brotherhood. So glory to the Ukrainian army, glory to the Ukrainian people for sticking through this and finally looking like victory is at hand. We'll be um, keeping tabs of the updates. Uh, I'll be on doing a few trips in the coming weeks, so I might have some updates on the road. I was recently in uh, Trinia, for example. So tune in, listen to what is hopefully a string of victories, and thank you all very much. Slava Ukraine. Slava. Thank you all very much for listening. If you would like to support this podcast, rate us, review us on any of the various apps used to listen, tell your friends, family, share us on Twitter, Facebook, all the various things that one does to promote a media business. If you would like to support us financially, you may go to patreon.com and sign up for one of our tiers. And so we would now like to thank our supporters who support us through that. So thank you very much to Deborah Grazer, David Shepard, Ivana Kukretskaya, Rajesh, Anonymous, Devi, Giuseppe, Sam Toman, Theo, Aiden McDonald, Alex Grochmel, Amea, Barbara Stetchen, Big Rob, Brianna Rhoda, Chris Bennington, Chris Walker, Crystal Burns, Daniel Ostrovsky, Daniel Spring, Deborah Lee, Eric Honnold, George, Grace Krause, Had to Laugh, Jacob Holm, James Wise, Jennifer Jarvis, Jessica Eck, Jurd, Justin Devendorf, Kristen Swanland, Laura DeLeon, Levy Grove, Lottie, Melissa Koselko, Michael Whiplash, Noam Hart, Nope, Patricia George, Paul Bailey, Randy McNerlin, Robert Bailey, Sanjay, Scott Gengris, Steve Bien, Stephen Greenberg, T. Bart, Vic, Victoria Leonteva, and Will Stevens. Thank you all very much. So until next time, stay safe, keep supporting Ukraine, and hopefully we'll have even more good news for you next time around. Slava Ukraini. <laughs>